It is, it is um, an honor to be here, and it's also deeply meaningful for me personally. Um, it's an honor because I look at those posters over there, and you have some magnificent speakers who come to this place. And I'm kind of part of that program. That feels kind of good. I know Mark Burroughs is a friend of mine. He's fantastic. He's, he's really good. Um, so I'm honored in that way, um, but it's also meaningful uh, to be here. When I was uh, in my young 20s, I was uh, early 20s, I was in the monastery. And um, part of our rule of life was that we had to spend an hour a day in some kind of silent meditation, silent prayer. Um, and we were free to find out whatever way we wanted to follow or method to do that. Um, and I kind of banged around in the monastery trying different things, um, didn't really settle. And then one day in the library, I came across this funny little blue book uh, by this guy called John Main, uh, Moment of Christ, with a funny title, really. Um, and I took that back to my cell, and uh, we hit it off right away, John and I, you might say. And uh, for the next five, ten years, all I did was read a little paragraph of that, say my word, stop, come back in the evening, read a paragraph, say my word. It's very simple, and it really provided me a really deep foundation. It was the way in to silence for me in my life. So coming here tonight feels a bit like coming back home. Strange. Emotions are strange, but I have that feeling. Um, and it's a feeling, too, of, 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 of saying thank you and offering something in gratitude for what uh, WCCM and the whole thing gave to me. So thank you for that. And thank you also, uh, Kate, for organizing everything and all my emails about where do I stay and how do I get there. Thanks. The reason for my being in the UK um, is that I have published this book. And um, when Canterbury Press offered me the contract on this book, they were delighted that I was a priest director at the Julian Center, because being in England and at the Julian Center, I would have a great platform for selling books. Um, I didn't tell them that I was moving back to the States. Um, but when I did move back to the States, I said, you know, I'll come back to the UK and do some programs to support the sale of the book. Um, but more than that, coming back here um, is a chance for me to connect with the friends I made and the communities I really enjoyed in my four years in Norwich and around the country a bit. And that is increasingly important to me because I find, uh, the older I get, that the kind of group that I'm with um, allows me, it's the right kind of group, to be more myself, more joyfully myself. So to meet with a group of people who are into Christianity perhaps, perhaps, but certainly meditation and silence, it's like we already sort of touch at the heart of who we are, and so I feel like I could more freely be myself with you, which is really, really fantastic. Um, and I really enjoy coming to the UK for this book tour because I want to share the insights that I gained through the process of writing this book. Um, I wrote the book mostly while caring for my two young kids. They're four and two. So it was kind of a tortured process of caring for them and carving out time. Um, 
But through that process, I came to some insights only at the end of writing the book that aren't really in the book. So I really would like to be able to share those, and this is a chance to do that. And the basic, the basic insight, um, the basic awareness that I had uh, through the writing of the book is that everything in Julian, Julian's experience of God, and Julian's spirituality, it's all about compassion. From the beginning, the middle, and the end, it's all about compassion. Her mystical experience, her theological understanding, and her pastoral counsel, it's all about compassion. And I'm beginning to wonder, for myself, maybe compassion is a way, as I understand it through Julian, of, of organizing or finding a thread of sense in my life. That maybe my life is about compassion too. Maybe I can understand my silence, my meditation, my intimate relationships, my wife and my kids, my pastoral work in a parish, my work with racial reconciliation in North Carolina, where I'm from. We have issues with that, you may have heard on the news. But all this can kind of be brought around sort of heart or center of compassion as I picked it up from Julian. So I want to explore that more. And I'll explore that mostly in the first part and, and then after the break um, I will look to this issue of relationships so far it's opened up by the compassion that we find in Julian. So I'll talk a bit. You'll all have questions ready to ask when I stop. And then we'll have some, some food and drink. And then I'll talk a bit and we'll have some questions again at the end. What I'm not going to do tonight is I'm not going to offer any kind of overview to Julian of Norwich. There is so much in the revelations of divine love um, I'm not even going to attempt to offer kind of a, a basic lecture on Julian of Norwich. Um, what I'm going to do is tell you the story of how I came to understand the essence of Julian as being about compassion. And tell that story. And I'll begin, though, with a short introduction to Julian in case you don't know who she is. Back in the States, there's something called the GOEs, the General Ordination Exams, and they're awful. They're like five days long, with these monstrous eight-hour open book essay questions on the history of the Episcopate. Awful things. I'm still psychologically scarred from those exams. But at the end of them, um, they have something called the coffee hour questions, which is like a three-hour period of, of like 90 questions, which you should know the answers to very quickly. And, uh, Articulately, and one of the classic questions was, who was Julian of Norwich and what did he do? <laughs> Those clever people on the exam board. Um, so Julian was a she, as most of you know, because you got that joke. Um, she was a 14th century mystic, theologian, and spiritual writer. And by mystic, I mean that she had direct experience of God, by theologian, I mean that she took that experience of God and used it to fashion a coherent theology in relationship to the theologies of the church of her time. And by spiritual writer, I mean that her primary motive for writing was to help us in our lives of prayer and to grow closer to God. That's what she wanted to do. 
Rowan Williams loves Julian. Desmond Tutu loves Julian. Thomas Merton loved Julian and might like her now in heaven. And these great people all love Julian. And she's understood to be one of the great, great mystics of the world religious traditions. So what happened with Julian, very briefly, is that when she was around 30 years old, she began to experience an illness, which became a near-death illness. And she oscillated between life and death. And that's important for the context of reading Julian. She was on half, sort of half in heaven and half on earth. And in the context of that near-death illness, she experienced 16 showings, or discrete mystical experiences of God, through images, through words, through understandings. And these 16 showings served to open her heart in a very general way, I'll say, to the unconditionality of God's love, that God's love is unconstrained, that God is simply an unconstrained, unconditioned joy in all things, which includes us just an unconditional wanting, claiming, cherishing, delighting in us that never, never stops, never is challenged, never is broken. And if, you, if you're with me, that begins to really sort of pan out pretty quickly into this sort of mystical vision of joy, just uncreated joy that we see in a lot of the world's mystics. And she also had a sense of her own essence and our own human essence as likewise a loving, joyful response to God. So she had these two basic things she explored, the love of God and our own core of love for God. And to give you a little sense of what I mean by showings, I'd like to share a bit from the first showing. She's on her deathbed, and the curate comes in and holds the a crucifix before her, asked her to gaze on it to comfort herself in the time of her dying. And she says, Suddenly I saw the red blood trickling down from under the garland, hot and freshly and most plenteously. I saw the blood trickling hot and freshly and most plenteously. Julian is a graphic poet. Just as it was at the time of his passion when the garland of thorns was pressed onto his blessed head. So it opens with a vision of the suffering humanity of Jesus, which, as it turns out in the course of the showings, and you can kind of poetically get into it, just in this image itself, is a vision our suffering. To see Jesus' suffering is to see our suffering. To see his hurt is to see our hurt. So the first part of Julian's mystical experience is this journey into the hurt of the human condition, our suffering, which we also see signs of a little bit, pieces of art on the wall. But she goes on and says, and in the same showing, suddenly the Trinity almost filled my heart with joy, and I understood it shall be like that in heaven without end for all that come there. So. That sounds kind of innocuous, but she's seeing the suffering humanity of Jesus, which will be her own suffering, her own passion, her own wounds, and ours, and at the same time experiences the unconditioned joy of God. So if you, if you grasp those two things, and you bring the human condition and the suffering of our world and our lives, and you layer that 
at the same time with a sense of unconditioned rejoicing. That kind of double-layered complexity, that's the heart of Julian's mystical experience. And as she says, all of the 16 showings flow from that. They're kind of an unfolding of that initial sense of us in our humanity, our world, and this unconditioned joy of God. Embracing that, accepting that. So, she had 15 more showings. They stopped. She quickly wrote down what's called the short version, or the short text, which is a series of, which is an autobiographical account of the series of 16 showings. This was my experience of God. She became an anchorite living at St. Julian's Church in Norwich, which was like a nun. I hope if I get this right. A woman consecrated to God, don't mean to embarrass anybody, consecrated to God through vows, publicly taken in the church, but not living in a community, but on her own in a small room or apartment attached to St. Julian's Church. Fifteen to twenty years later, she comes out with a long text, which is that short autobiographical account combined with six times of material um, of theological reflection and pastoral counsel. And this makes the Revelations just an amazing text because you have this 14th century record of a woman saying, this was my experience of God and myself and my struggle with that. And you have 20 years of theological reflection about that, which is very, very precise and rigorous. Julian was not just a devotional writer. She was a theologian, and a creative theologian, refashioning Christianity in some ways. And you have this bit of pastoral counsel, which is, this is what this means for your life of prayer and living close to God. So if you say, why should I bother with Julian of Norwich? As one of my friends says, she is a sub-niche of a sub-niche of a sub-niche. You go into Waterstones, right? You have like health, spirituality, religion, Christianity, faith, mystic. She's down way at the bottom reason why you should bother about this 14th century woman in her book, if you want to grow to become more compassionate, perhaps more loving, more honest, more capable of being truthful, Julian is your woman. Not only because she gives you this way of understanding yourself and God that allows for that kind of vision of human life, but she shares with you her own struggle in coming to terms with that vision. Because it's autobiographical, and because you have that 20-year gap between the short text and the long text, so you can see Julian journey from the younger self to the more mature self. And she shares her struggle with what God is showing her and how that changes her. So that's why you should bother, I think, with Julian. My own journey with her um, began as an 18-year-old philosophy student who wrote lots of bad poetry at university and a recent convert to Christianity, and I was looking for some way to give my life to God. Kind of a crazy thing, but go back to when you were 18, maybe. Kind of, I'll give my whole life to God. I'll do the whole thing. No remainder. And so I began to like explore monastic life as one does, and eventually discovered the Order of Julian of Norwich, which is this 
Episcopalian monastic order in the States, devoted to Julian, and it has as its charism um, the idea of going in to retrieve the mystical and contemplative dimensions of Christianity, to practice them within a strict, good, wholesome monastic context, and then to share them with the church. And that's important because that means that my reading of Julian of Norwich was not a reading that was about how does Julian compare in her eschatology to St. Brigitte of Sweden, and it wasn't about how does her Christology compare to that of Karl Rahner, Karl Barth, or whatever. It was the monk's question. The monk's question is, how do I possibly grow in love? How do I possibly grow in humility? I've given my whole life to God. I've come here to this monastery to live close to God, but I don't, and I can't. So I'm reading Julian, asking, like, how do I do this? How do I make sense of this life that is given to God? How, how do I live close to God? How might I actually be a little bit more humble? Maybe. What does silent prayer mean? Why am I sitting doing nothing for an hour Well, I left the monastery, got married, studied counseling here in England, worked in Norwich. Um, but the big thing about compassion happened in 2014, this process towards compassion in Julian, when um, I got a letter from St. Paul's in London. And they asked me to come do a quiet day on Julian. And they said they'd like it to be on All Shall Be Well. And I'm like, oh. Really, really all shall be well? Julian's most famous saying, I'd seen it engraved on plaques, on tea towels, on pens, on bumper stickers. I'd heard any number of priests just sort of vent about how awful the world was, and then to say, but, as Julian of Norwich said, all shall be well. So it wasn't my favorite phrase with Julian. I was kind of tired of it. Um, but I was aware that some people had found really authentic consolation in it. No matter how jaundiced I was about all shall be well, um, I still had to meet people at the Julian Shrine who would say to me that it saved their life. Uh, one woman um, talked about being in the hospital, intensive care, thinking she might die, caught in anguish and frustration. A friend comes in and offers her all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And it's as if the words effected what they said, kind of like sacramentally. They affected a wellness in her when she let go of her resistance to what was happening and just trusting, opening, the opening of, that, of our hearts in trust that all shall be well. That relaxation, which we know in meditation, right? kind of relaxation, that openness, which allows and welcomes all things in an inchoate kind of way. So people have that. It's a consolation. But I also knew, as a monk, my struggle with Julian and Julian tea towels, um, that there's a huge, huge challenge in all shall be well. Because God doesn't say most things are going to be good, and we're going to get rid of the rest. 
because that's the way we are, naturally. Most things are going to be good. Maybe a few things are going to be good, and we'll get rid of the rest, and we'll have just the good stuff. But God says to Julian, all, all shall be well. That's unconstrained, that's universal, that says that everything, everything is part of God's process of well-making. And God is at work in each moment of life, everything, for the making well of that moment. So it's inviting a kind of unconditional surrender, which I knew from John of the Cross, and whoa, that's a bit of a challenge. Now, before you start thinking about all the things that you're like, well, I'm going to ask Robert about this. What about Syria? That can't be well. I think that's kind of a red herring. It kind of stops the process. I would invite you to do is to think about instead what can't possibly be well in your life. Well, if that's too much, today. What can't be well in your life? or just today, or right now. And somehow, God saying to Julian, all shall be well, is saying that, that, that God is in that, and at work in that in you for its well-making. So it's really inviting that kind of unconditional openness to the fact of our lives, the truth of what's there. Not that it's necessarily good, some of it's very, very bad, that God is at work in everything. And I begin to note that Julian, in the first instance, didn't say all shall be well. God said it to her, and then she argued with God for about 13 chapters about how that couldn't be the case because of all the suffering and the evil and the wrongness and because of the idea of damnation. And she brings all that forward, and God sort of says, Ugh, you're going to have to trust me. I'm not going to explain it. And the more you try to figure out how it could be the case, farther you'll be from the truth. And that's a beautiful kind of meditative thing that fits in with the whole spirit of meditation. The more you try to figure it out, the farther you'll be from living in it. It's a counsel for incomprehension, which I, I delight in. So I went to, down to St. Paul's and then off to the retreat center where they had this quiet day. And I knew that I myself at that point in my life, 2014, two years ago, yesterday, actually, I was reaching for, well, I, I was encountering more hurts in my life that seemed almost unmanageable, and I was reaching for some way for love to address that in my life, the love that's implicit in all shall be well. So I myself was reaching for that with the retreatants. But as I spoke about the challenge of all shall be well, something kind of amazing happened. It's a quiet day, right? You're supposed to be quiet, like all of you are, mostly now. It's also England, where you must be reticent. That's a joke. <laughs> and what happened is, as I laid out this challenge of all shall be well, they overcame any stricture of the day, any training in reticence, centuries of reticence, and one man just spoke up and interrupted me on a quiet day and said, no, no, that is, just, that is simply not right. It is not good. I'm not going there. There is some stuff that just needs to be kept out. In other words, like, 
most will be well, some will be well, and we'll get rid of the rest. And what followed from that was vigorous fellowship. And the quiet day kind of opened up into this dialogic conversation, or dialogue and conversation, um, that we, I wasn't debating with this guy trying to prove that all would be well or anything crazy like that. But we were reaching for something. We wanted to be able to hold the truth of our lives in an unlimited way. All of it that was there, the fact of our lives. And we wanted to be able to hold at the same time this promise of God's love that all shall be well, that my love is in all things, making it all well. And it's a pretty difficult, tense situation with that because the hurt places in our lives, the still hurt places, what they, what they don't want is to be given some fancy religious slogan from a 14th century mystic. So absolutely not. I am not well. This is not well. And don't give me that religious stuff. But we also wanted to hold on to that religious stuff as something that gave hope and openness and explained our experience of meditation and, and just seemed to be at the core of things. And so we reached for a way to kind of have both of these. And what we got to was something from my counseling experience, which was imagining our souls, imagine your soul as a room. And in that room, there are two chairs. And in one chair, the fact of your lives can come in. You can sit there and fully be there. The other chair, God's love can come and be there. And the question was not how do we pull these together? How do we explain this? How is love going to be redemptive of that? How is it all going to work? The question was, can we do just that? Can we just have them in the same room at the same time? Can we just start there? and listen to one speak, and listen to the other speak. Because there was that concern for God's love, and there was that concern for our lives. And we sort of thought by the end, that yeah, maybe we could do that. And maybe our lives would begin to interrogate God a bit, and say, how could you be loved? Just like Julian did. And maybe God's love would begin to interrogate our lives, like he interrogates Julian when he says in Showing Nine, are you well satisfied with me, Julian? Are you satisfied with my cross? Why aren't you satisfied? What is unsatisfied? Well, that led me into this notion of Christian faith. And I thought, aha, I've got something here. I've got something about faith. That faith is something like a sustained openness of myself, which I choose to be open to God and God's word in Jesus, because I'm a Christian, and open to my experience, myself, and open to the world. That maybe that's how I could describe faith. as kind of having that open space, being welcoming, being capacious, having that space in me where God, myself, and the world could all be and maybe have a conversation that might lead me to some kind of action. And I began to think of like a faith process 
of about sort of consolation in the stuff of faith, and then the challenge of it and the integration of it that might begin with this kind of room, this roomy soul. And I have to admit, I'm stealing something there from a Lutheran, Lutheran theologian who said that if God is a trinity, that means God is capacious. There's room inside God for us, and maybe there's room in us for God. So I started writing the book about faith and Julian and caring for my kids. And as I said, you know, if you're thinking of doing that, like J.K. Rowling-like, don't. It's terrible. Um, but uh, we got through it, and the book was published. And I realized I'd be coming back to England to do this tour. And one day I put my feet up on my desk, literally, and said, well, what have I learned from this whole thing? What's like the one thing I really want to say in this, in this book, writing the book? And it was that sense of compassion being everything in Julian. Just listen to this. This is from before the showings. She's describing, this is chapter two, and she's describing um, that in her youth she desired three gifts from God. And the first is for uh, a vision of the passion. She says, as for that first gift, I thought I had some sense of the passion of Christ, but still I desired more by the grace of God. I thought that I wished to have been at that time with Mary Magdalene and with the others who were Christ's lovers. And therefore I desired a bodily sight wherein I could have more knowledge of the bodily pains of our Savior. So she wants to have compassionate, the compassionate, empathic experience of Jesus and his suffering, feeling those sufferings in her own body. It's a bodily vision. She wants to feel the passion of Christ in her own body because that's what she says, compassionate people do. So she wants to have that and the compassion of Our Lady and of all his true lovers who at that time saw his pains. For I wish to be one of them and to suffer with them. Some way, in some way, Julian has this core assumption that to be a spiritual being as a Christian means to sort of be able to open oneself in compassion and to experience in oneself the suffering of Jesus. Or, more generally, to experience the reality of Jesus in herself. That she has this assumption that uh, to be spiritual means to be able to be open to the experience of the other and to feel that in herself. That's what it means to be a lover and a friend. It is to feel the experience of the other in oneself. And that's what her spirituality was about. That's what she wanted. And I began to think about that across the, all of Julian's showings. Um, and I began to see that there's sort of a threefold compassion in, in Julian. It's compassion, what I've talked about is faith, as this openness of myself to God's word in Jesus, to my word to God and myself and my experience, and the word of the world, as it were. That description of faith is actually a description of compassion that is open to the experiencing of God, open to the experiencing of the world, and open to the experiencing of myself. 
So I began to think of compassion as a three-petaled flower coming out of one basic human capacity, which is to be open to the experience of the other and to be able to feel it and know it in oneself without losing one's own self-differentiation, so not being lost in other people, but feeling your experience in me. And I begin to see that Julian makes decisions in the course of the showings based on whether it in fact keeps her open in this way or closes her down. Like during the eighth showing, she has a prompting to seek God transcendentally, straight to heaven. And she says no to that because her choice is to remain open to the suffering of Jesus and to the reality of Jesus because he is her lover for as long as that shall be. So what's important for her is the intimacy of that relationship of knowing the other in herself and herself in the other. As a therapist, I was very aware of my compassion for myself and being attuned to what's going on in me is what enables me to be attuned to what's going on in you. That if I'm a, if I'm a bundle of like self-contradictions and fears and anxieties and stuff in myself, I can't possibly be open sensitively to your experience. So I knew there was some kind of mutual reciprocity there between self and other. Being open to myself, attuned to myself, I can be open to you, I can be attuned to you. But if I'm all static inside, I can't be attuned to anything. That made sense. But what about this compassion for God? I love that. That's my new sort of polemic or rhetorical thing. Compassion for God, what does that mean? And I saw that, however, that Julian starts, she doesn't start, her journey in compassion does not start with, I need to be compassionate towards other people. I don't know how you feel when the preacher on Sunday morning or wherever says, let's all go out and be more compassionate. I don't know, it's kind of like, thanks, I'll, I'll do that. But often we approach that, like, let's just go out and just, just, just do compassion. That's not where Julian starts. And she doesn't even start with the therapeutic thing of being compassionate with yourself and open and attuned to your experience. She starts with the, this desire to be compassionate to God, which is mediated for her through the humanity of Jesus because of her Christian faith. And when you look at what happens in the Revelations, what happens is, so Julian opens herself to Jesus. What she experiences is what I've already kind of shown in that first showing, the, the suffering humanity enfolded in love, enfolded in love, cherished, and so she begins to, when she's open in compassion to God, she experiences God's compassion for her and this sort of unconstrained welcome of her. No limits. And the world. And that raises the question for Julian, gosh, I like myself this much. God likes me this much. The life of God is like that. My life is like this. So if I'm going to live with God or responsive to God, I need to risk being more welcoming, more open, more acceptant 
of myself and this world. Not necessarily as good, but again as the place of God's work in making all things well. And we don't want to do that. There's a good reason why we say we like this much, not that much, and definitely not that much. The limits are safe. And you see Julian wrestle with God. But one of the wonderful things about the showings is you can see how she starts out in her youth feeling that she's on sort of a journey towards perfection. She has to get somewhere to be really close to God. And by the end of it, in chapter 52, she talks about, which is her mature reflections at this point, she talks about, you know, we all have in us Christ risen in glory. And we all have in us Adam and his miserable folly. And these two are just mixed together in a muddle of well and woe and delight and suffering. And because of the mixture of these feelings, hardly do we know how we hold out. So she's open to this wide breadth of experience, and it's all accepted. The misery of Adam in me, the bliss of Christ risen. But she's not saying, but I'm going to get better. I'm going to get more like Christ risen. This is just what she is, and it's all, it's all the means of intimacy with God. And I think that kind of openness to herself led her to be open to the world. We knew that she was a great counselor. People sought her out. Um, and she's able to be acceptant of others. So compassion for God to compassion for herself, sort of unfolding like a flower to be compassionate with others. Now how it's worked for me is a little bit different. Um, I think I think in life, as we grow, it means sort of encountering some of the core hurt of our lives. I don't know, I have some. You probably have some. And then opening that up for kind of a redemptive process in some way, a healing, saving process. A little bit more hurt, more saving, more hurt, more saving. And when I was a college student, I was really beginning to face into the hurt from my father's death when I was young undealt with grief and my mother going kind of emotionally crazy after dad died and all this stuff that I needed to sort of, I was just facing into this stuff. Um, and so I was, I was having some kind of initial compassion for myself and that's why the figure of Jesus on the cross meant something to me in the middle of a sacred space. There I am. That's him. That was my dad as he was dying of cancer. That's my mom. That's me. So it opened up a, my own sort of compassion with myself, opened up a kind of compassion for the word of God or God's story in Christianity and sort of a resonance between the two. And it structured and supported my own journey in getting more sort of attuned to my own life, my own hurt. And it's sort of gone on from there. Um, a little bit of self, a lot of time with God, and a little bit more self, more time with God. But I think that's kind of the, the journey into compassion. And that we can't be these instantly open people who can just 
welcome everything because we aren't even attuned to our own selves. We're kind of a mess. We're staticky in ourselves, going all different directions, but coming more open to ourselves, a little bit more healed, more open to you. Hey, you love me. Huh. That helps me to be more open to me. We have a community then of people who are more loving with each other. We begin to have a community. We begin to know more love, more loving with ourselves. Then we sort of go on from there. Um, and the thing about that and about Julian's revelations is that God did an intervention into Julian's life to get the whole process going. And Julian was very clear that that intervention was for us as well. That reading her book is about encountering a God who loves us in that way to take us further on that step, on that path of self-acceptance, other acceptance, broader, kind of more capacious, roomy self, attuned self. And with that, I'm going to stop for a moment. We have like five, ten minutes for questions. We can even like just go on with an hour of questions.